Hey, good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Thanks, Pastor. I got to meet Pastor and Jessica just this morning, as a matter of fact. We've talked on the phone some, but honored to be with you. Honored to be with Voices of Lead, Danny and Debbie, good friends for a long, long time. Danny's like a father to me, as I said many times before. Uh, 30 years older than I am. But anyway, uh, really good to be with you and, and to share the, uh, sort of the culmination of your missions week. Thank you for all you've been doing in your community, in your state, and around the world through missions as we all become Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth in, in the name of Jesus Christ. Then the kingdom is expanded and grows, and we're excited about that. I grew up, as Pastor said, in, in southwest Virginia, up in the mountains of Virginia near Roanoke, and uh, my dad was a pastor, so I was in church all the time, and we traveled. My dad didn't believe in staying anywhere very long, so I changed schools 10 times in 12 years. We pastored a lot of small rural churches in the mountain. My father grew up in West Virginia. Uh, my grandfather was a raging alcoholic and, and finally sent my dad to church to keep, get the pastor to stop coming by and visiting, and, and so my dad accepted Christ after he got out of the military finally, and and so we grew up in a real sort of um, legalistic environment. It's all dad knew. It's all he was told. And so uh, everything, when I was growing up, everything was a sin, right? So I looked at my brother. I was 13. He was 12. I said, we're going to hell. There's nothing we can do about it, brother. So we might as well just enjoy the journey. And uh, so anyway, lived like that for a while. Went off to school, went to Lee, and, uh, and found my way back to the cross and accepted Christ and his grace and, and went into ministry. So I left Lee and uh, went into what I call traditional ministry. So I was a youth pastor and associate pastor for about 14 years. Had a good time. Uh, we, Ron and I, my wife, we uh, had the opportunity to do youth ministry in, in uh, Florida and Virginia and, and Georgia, and we had a good time and associate pastor work and opportunity to lead mission trips around the world, and it was a lot of fun. But I just kept saying to Ron along the way, uh, we'd have a service and we'd be driving home and I'd just look at her and I'd go, is this all there is? Not bad. I just didn't know if this was all God had for me. I just didn't know if I was supposed to just fall into this mold that had been set before me and just do that for the rest of my life. And so I was, in, uh, I was on staff at a church just north of Atlanta for about five and a half years. And while we were there, we took youth and singles downtown to inner city Atlanta to do work. And it was good stuff, but we would just go back home to the suburbs. At the time, Ron and I had four daughters. We have five girls, Cassie, Kelsey, Kenzie, Kayla, and Carly. Say that real fast. But uh, we have five daughters. That's, uh, that's why I look like this. But anyway, we have, uh, <laughs> we have five daughters, and we had four at the time. We're living in the suburbs, great schools, great home, great church. Everything's good. And the bishop of North Georgia at the time called, and he said uh, to my pastor, Darrell, he said, hey, would you mind sending Bruce downtown, just loaning downtown Atlanta for six months? We got a little church down there. It started in 1969. It's Mission Possible. It did good for a while. It's been, it's been sort of declining for a while now. It's been without a pastor about six months. We think we need to probably close it and sell the property. And maybe Bruce could go down and do that for us. Pastor Rice said, that sounds like a good idea. And so I talked to Ron and I said, I'd be fine. I get to go speak every Sunday for six months and help people transition, wrap up the business part and go back to my life. And so we go down and our fifth or sixth Sunday, and this is just our story, our fifth or sixth Sunday, a young lady walks in the back after service had started and there were just a few of us there. And she looked pretty rough. And at the end of the service, she walked down front and she was weeping. And her words to me were, I've been hooking and stripping 14 years. Can you help me get out of the life? So I said, well, I think we can. And so we prayed with her and she accepted Christ that morning. It was a powerful transformation. And we did some things for her that week. And she showed back up the next Sunday. It's always good when people get saved and come back to church, Pastor. But anyway, she showed up the next Sunday and she brought Bill with her. Bill was a 52-year-old alcoholic, hadn't been in a worship service of any kind in 30 years, and was one of her paying customers. 
And she said to Bill, during the week, I found something I think you need. Come go to church with me. And so we did. And they came in and walked all the way down to the second row. And they sat right here with this lady sitting. And Bill was sitting on the end. And we opened the service. And we were singing that little chorus, I need you more, more than yesterday, more than the words I say. And about five minutes into service, Bill steps out in the center aisle and falls down on his face and starts wailing out loud and won't stop. And finally, I stopped and I went down. I go, can I help you? And he said, well, I think I need Jesus. And I said, well, we usually do that at the end of service, right? We got to, I need to preach first and invite you. And he said, no, I think I need him now. And so we led Bill to Jesus. It was the coolest thing. And I thought, well, this is pretty good. We're closing a church. We're selling the property. And yet people are still coming to Christ. The problem was they wouldn't stop coming. The next Sunday, four more drug addicts and alcoholics showed up. And the next Sunday, six more showed up. And we walked in four months into our six-month assignment, and there were literally 100 drug addicts, alcoholics, homeless folks, and prostitutes had invited each other to this little church, and they looked at me and said, can you help us? And I looked at my wife, Rhonda, and I, yeah, cool. And I looked at my wife, Rhonda, and I drew on all of my deep theological training, and I said, woman, we have been conned by God. Right? This is not our plan. This is not, this is not our plan. This is not what we had determined the course of our ministry was going to look like. As Pastor mentioned again, I'm from Virginia, and we all knew the church in Virginia I was going back to pastor. The church in Virginia knew it. I knew it. My family knew it. There's a great church in the mountains of southwest Virginia. At the time, it was around about 600 folks. I'm kin to 100 of them, right? And I was going back there. The guy that was there was a senior adult. He was going to retire in three or four years, and everybody knew that's where I was going. I knew it. We all knew it. I was going back. I was going to hunt and fish, eat fried chicken, chocolate pie, watch Andy Griffith. I knew what my life was going to be. I didn't have any desire or plan to go to the inner city. But you know, it's God is, uh, he's tricky that way sometimes. So I, I looked at Pastor Rice. I said, I think I'm supposed to do this. And so we, we accepted the pastorate and I started City of Refuge. And I made the mistake of reading in my, in, my lo, in my daily Bible study right at the time we started City of Refuge. I started my study of the book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah, the story is told in chapter 1, Nehemiah says, uh, my brother Hananiah from my hometown of Jerusalem came by to see me. And when my brother Hananiah came by to see me, I inquired of him as to the condition of my hometown. And he told me that my hometown was in ruins, that the gates had been burned with fire, that the walls had been destroyed, and that my friends and family had been taken captive. And Nehemiah said, when I heard these words, I sat down. Literally, physically, he felt so overcome that he sat down with the condition of his city. And then he said, and I wept and I cried for many days. I wept and I fasted and I prayed for many days. He was overcome with emotion about the condition of his city. And then he said, I prayed a prayer of repentance. And the prayer of repentance is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 1. And, and I started thinking about that and I thought, you know, for a long time I've heard about the plight of our cities. I've heard about homelessness and addiction and sex trafficking, and I've heard about those that have been incarcerated who are now returning citizens, and I've heard about children without fathers, and I've gone in for weekends at a time or for a week at a time to do work for them, and I have wept about their plight, and I have fasted and I have prayed, but I have often stopped at the end of chapter one of Nehemiah. I've often stopped after I have wept and after I fast and after I've prayed and after I've repented, I've often gone back to my regular life. But then I read chapter two of the book of Nehemiah. 
And in chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes before the king as is his daily responsibility to bear wine to the king. And he tastes it before to make sure it has not been poisoned. He takes it to the king. And the king looks at him and says, Nehemiah, why is your face so downcast? And why do you look like this? I've never seen you look like this before. And Nehemiah shares with him what has happened, what he's heard about his city. And the king asks a question. He says, what would you have me do for you? If I'd have been Nehemiah, I'd said, how about sending soldiers over to get my friends and family back? How about sending block masons over to rebuild the walls? How about sending the iron workers over to rehang the gates? But that's not what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said, if it pleased the king, send me. Nehemiah had never rebuilt walls before. He had never hung gates before. He was, uh, he was living in the king's palace. He was eating at the king's table. He was partaking of the king's provision. And now he's ready to go and transform a city. And I looked at Ron and I said, you know what? God has called us not just to fast and not just to pray and not just to weep, but we have to go because this has now come our city. And so we started the city of refuge and we started reaching out in various ways. And we'd been there a few months and Rhonda called me out of her quiet time one morning and she said, hey, babe, if we're going to win the city, we got to go to the city. And I said, I was hoping you wouldn't figure that part out, right? I was still driving back home to the suburbs in the evening. She was still pulling our girls, our two oldest, across the street in a little red wagon to school every morning and back in the evening. We had a good life. I was going in and out. She said, we got to go. And and so we looked around and the church didn't have any money, so we couldn't really afford to live in a safe, nice neighborhood. And I didn't really think we should move the daughters into a home in this neighborhood where the ministry was. So I said to Rhonda, sort of in jest, the third floor of this 65-year-old church building's empty. And she said, well, let's move in. So we did. And it's amazing to me when they build churches, they don't put bathtubs in them. I can't figure that out, right? So we moved into this church, and for the first six months, my girls took a bath in a number two wash tub that we'd filled up with a green water hose, right? And we moved in, and the first night we were there, a crack addict tried to steal the van, and he was high on crack, and he hot-wired the windshield wiper motors. And I came out the next morning, the van's still there, and the windshield wiper's going like this. And I said, well, this is going to be a hoot here, Right? And so we moved in. I told her, I said, we'll live here a year. We ended up living there the first six years. It's been 21 years since we went downtown on a six-month assignment. The first six years, we lived in this 65-year-old church building. We got all the fun, cool stories that you want from living in a church building in the inner city. We're broken into 34 times. We have three vehicles stolen. I've been in fist fights in the parking lot, took guns and knives away from people, been in Superior Court with guys that tried to kill me. It's just more fun than we'd ever had in church before, right? <laughs> I mean, we didn't have one business meeting about the color of the carpet. We, we just didn't. We, did, we weren't talking about... <laughs> we, we weren't talking about contemporary versus traditional. The music's too loud, too quiet. We're like, you didn't get shot? I didn't get shot. It's a good week, man. And so the Lord just blew this thing up. People started coming from everywhere. I'm like, where are all these people coming from? And, and so we had this house full of people, many of whom had experienced criminal backgrounds and incarceration, addiction. And so while I was there and good things were going, I was still considered a bit of an outsider, right? Because I hadn't lived the life that some of my friends had lived. At least 50% of our congregation had been incarcerated. And, and so there was a physical altercation took place one day. Somebody decided to do something they shouldn't do on the property, and I intervened in that, and we ended up sort of, you know, throwing hands. And so we, we, and so the cops showed up and the cops looked at us and said, well, both of you have marks on you. Did y'all hit each other? And I go, yeah. And he goes, well, we'll have to arrest you both. 
whatever you have to do, right? So they arrest the other individual, put them in the car and ride off, and they write up my arrest warrant, and the cop's like, all right, let's go, and Rhonda and the girl's on step. Daddy, going to jail! And so, <laughs> so right as they're about to put me in the car, the staff sergeant pulls up and goes, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And the officer said, well, we're arrested. He said, you're not taking the preacher to jail? And he goes, yeah, well, we, I am. And he goes, Bruce, we're going to arrest you. I'm releasing you on our cognizance. Be in court 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. So they arrested me, released me. Showed up court next morning, 9 o'clock. Judge thankfully dismissed the charges against me. Next Sunday morning, I walked in church. Word had gotten out. I walked in church next Sunday morning, half my congregation like. <laughs> See? You only got to get arrested once to get street cred, right? <laughs> but just to make sure I got arrested again last year, so I won't maintain, you know, keep going. <laughs> so... So we, we have all this fun going on, and I look around one day, and I start counting, and, and Rhonda and I started fostering little girls. Our fifth daughter was born while we lived there, and we started fostering and guardianship little girls whose moms are going to rehab or jail to solve their issues. And I woke up, and I started counting, and between my wife and our five daughters and the single moms and their daughters, I was living with 23 women in this little 20,000-square-foot uh, 20, building. <laughs> That's what I said. And... Uh, <laughs> So I asked a real estate buddy, I said, go over deeper in the hood and find me a building. So he went over and he came back and he said, hey, I found a building at 1300 Joseph Boone Boulevard. He said, it's eight acres of land, five acres under roof, an eight foot fence with razor wire and an armed guard at the gate. I said, well, our dreams have come true. Go see how much they want for that. And he came back and he said, the owner said he'll take a million six hundred thousand. And I don't know how good a negotiator I am. My counter offer was, we don't have any money. And so <laughs> he turned that down. But I made the same offer for <laughs> surprise. I made the same offer for six months, and six months later, he donated, donated this facility in the inner city to City of Refuge. So our zip code 30314 has the highest crime rate in the state of Georgia, highest homeless population, highest number of HIV positive cases, more men and women incarcerated from my, by, from my zip code than any zip code in the state of Georgia, 73% of our kids in a single adult household, 35% graduation rate, 60% of all the murders that occur in Metro Atlanta, 13 counties, 6 million population occur in my neighborhood. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution did an article on the most violent block in the city of Atlanta and identified the 1300 block of Joseph Boone Boulevard. Our address is 1300 Joseph Boone Boulevard. And in the middle of the darkness and in the middle of the crisis and in the middle of the pain and in the middle of the agony, there is eight acres of land with five acres under roof that God had picked out when it was built more than 65 years ago for City of Refuge to move in and start to bring light, hope, and transformation to a community. And all he was waiting on was for somebody to say yes to the call. He wasn't waiting on special gifting or special talent or special experience. He was waiting on somebody to say yes. And when we said yes, he gave it to us. And, and we created this environment. So our goal was, if we can go in and create an environment where we offer every single thing that somebody needs in crisis, when they get here, if everything they need is on one campus, how much more successful can we be than if they have to go to three or four or six or eight or ten different locations? And they have to set multiple appointments and they have to find childcare and they have to find $95 for public transportation. What if we did all that at one place? And so we started work. We started to clean up and we'd been there a few weeks and an older gentleman from the neighborhood came up and he said, who are you and what are you doing? And so I told him who we were and what we're doing and he left and he came back about 30 minutes later and he said, hey, I went down to the corner and told the crack dealers they might as well move out because Jesus was moving in. 
they didn't go anywhere, but it's a cool story anyway. So anyway, <laughs> so, so we got there. We said, if it please the king, send us. And then and, and Nehemiah asked the king for letters to the leader of the province next to them to get timbers to go rebuild the city. So we just started asking people for stuff, right? We started asking and we started getting stuff and we started having donations. We started having volunteers come along. And then people didn't like that. It's amazing to me that when you're doing good work, sometimes people want to not only dislike you, they want to kill you, right? And so Nehemiah says in the, in the book of Nehemiah, what he's talking about, he said, we did work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. So they're rebuilding the wall while fighting the enemy at the same time. We don't have time for the stories I could tell you about the physical encounters and the guns and the knives and the fist fights. It's been a hoot, man. And people ask me, are you afraid? And I go, I don't know if I was or not. We were out, I was, trying, I was out just, this is not long ago, three or four months ago, we had one of our ladies in our anti-trafficking program got kidnapped by her pimp again and they had taken her away and she was in a house not far from the neighborhood and she got a phone and she texted my daughter who runs the anti-trafficking program. She said, I can see your building from here. You have to come get me. They're doing vile things. And so, so we start looking for her and we're going out we're trying to find her and so it gets dark and 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 man, the cops have come and they've looked in a number of houses they can't find her but we just won't give up and so it's about 10 or 10 30 in my neighborhood and and i'm walking out and i've got my armed security guard eric is at the gate we have 24 hour armed security and eric's at the gate and i just feel like i'm supposed to go check 279 burbank this house that we know is a house of all kind of stuff and i said as i'm walking by eric's loaded i mean he's got four or five guns on he's got all kind of stuff he's trained security and as i'm walking by i say hey eric we got to go find lindy come go with me. He looked at me and he said, hey, preacher, it's dangerous out there. <laughs> I said, that's why I have you. That's why you're my security and you have guns. He goes, I'm not going out there. And he wouldn't go. And so I thought, what do I do? Well, Lindy's out there. So I kept going. So I hang a right on Joseph Boone and I hang a right on Burbank and I'm up by 279. There's all kind of activity and they got some, some of their boys are hanging out at the store, at the cor, uh, store on the corner and they're texting them to tell them I'm coming. And, and, and it's, a, it's a long story. When I talk about 20 years ago, the 21, Jake, a, a crack addict uh, that ended up dying in the backseat of my truck one night. That's another story. But anyway, Jake, um, he started calling me the ghetto rev 20 years ago. And after a while, they dropped Rev, and they just call me ghetto in the streets now, right? And so they're texting them, ghetto's coming, ghetto's coming, right? And so I couldn't take my truck because they know my truck because, like you said, I'm a redneck from the mountains with a, you know, a big lifted 35 F-250 going up in there like, well, here comes ghetto again. So anyway, so I couldn't sneak up on them, so I'm just walking. And as I'm walking, my phone rings, and my wife Rhonda goes, where are you? Because she'd heard what was going on. I said, well, I'm looking for Lindy. And she goes, where are you right now? And I said, well, I'm right outside 279 Burbank. I think she's in there and I'm going to go get her. And she said, are you by yourself? And I said, yeah, I'm by myself. She goes, are you afraid? And I said, well, I wasn't until you brought it up. <laughs> you see, sometimes, it's, sometimes when you walk out God's purpose, danger will come. Sometimes when you walk out God's purpose, risk will come. Sometimes when you walk out God's purpose, it's not all that some in Christianity would portray it to be, that it's all blessing and provision and everything piles up and there's never a risk. Listen, Jesus Christ experienced a lot of risk and hung on a cross for us, right? There was a price to be paid for ministry, and so we understand that where we are, there's a price to be paid. If you're going to go get those out of addiction and out of, that are coming out of incarceration, out of prostitution, out of selling drugs, out of being pimps, if you're going to go there, you have to walk in the power and the authority of Almighty God, or you will die. 
And so we rise every morning with this intention that we're going to walk in his power and his spirit and that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. When we moved downtown 20, uh, when we moved downtown 20 years ago, I, I sat down with my mom and dad who had been in ministry at that time for 50 years, and, and I told them, I said, hey, we're moving downtown. We're going to take the girls. We're moving in this church. And my mom said, you're not taking my grandbabies downtown. They'll be raped and murdered and blah, 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 blah. Ho, 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 ho. Mom, what about all those scriptures? What about greater is he that is in us? No weapon formed against us. Hedge of protection. She put her head down. She looked up. She said, you're not taking my grandbabies downtown. Sometimes scripture's good for everybody else, right? But we moved into this neighborhood, into this warehouse. And so this morning, as we move along quickly, I don't have time, but as we move along this morning, while you and I woke up, I woke up in, in, a, in a motel, hotel down the road here. Not down the road, way over yonder. Y'all are in the middle of nowhere. You got to want to come here. I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> I, I got here and I put in my, uh, in my phone food and it just laughed at me. No food around here. So anyway, <laughs> but this morning while we woke up in our, in our safe, comfortable environments, 220 homeless mothers and children woke up on our campus. They live in a 180-day program, six-month program, where we provide housing, medical, mental health, and dental care, parenting classes, vocational training classes. Uh, we provide financial literacy classes. We make sure that when that mom graduates our program, three things have to happen for us to consider it success. She, she moves to safe and affordable housing. She has a livable wage income, which in Atlanta is a minimum of $12 an hour, and her children are going to at least an average performing school. Over the last five years, 93% of the mothers with children who moved on our campus have graduated to those three success points in their life. We have 100% of, yeah. We're 100% full 100% of the time with a huge waiting list. Most popular uh, environment for this kind of recovery in, in the Southeast United States. It's amazing to me. People walk in and will go, how did you hear about us? They go, well, I got homeless over in so-and-so. They'll name a state bordering us. And my cousin said, if you can get to City Refuge, I'll take care of you. We walked this whole journey. So we have those uh, on campus. Another 80 women, single women without children, woke up on campus in the same type of environment. We have the clinic, as I mentioned, 10,000 square foot medical clinic, medical, mental health, dental envision 750 patient visits a month on our campus. A private Christian school now in its 10th year of, of, of existence. Nine graduating classes. 100% of the seniors that have graduated have been college accepted over the last nine years. Not all of them chose to go, but 100% have been accepted. I figured out, I said, well, if we get somebody off of drugs and alcohol, they come out of prison, they come out of this and that, and, and we, get them, we get them cleaned up and sober and loving Jesus, but if they got three, four, five, seven felonies, they still can't get a job. So what's going to happen? They're going to revert back to behavior they know. So we said, we have to create our own social enterprise, social entrepreneurship program. So we started creating our own businesses and starting companies to hire people. And so this year, we will take people through vocational training in Napa Auto, Napa Partners with us in Napa Auto Skills, in Culinary Arts Training Program, in Orkin Pest Control, in Landscape, in Customer Service, and in Tech Academy. This year, we will train and put 400 individuals with obstacles to employment will go into the workforce this year with life skills and soft skills and the faith-based orientation around that because they have to have the opportunity to earn income. 
And so six years ago, we had this dramatic encounter. I won't go into all the details, but I got a call from another nonprofit in another state that said, we've rescued a young lady from sex trafficking. Can you house her for a minute? Did we figure out what to do? We didn't have an anti-trafficking program at the moment. So we went and got her, and it's like a scene out of a movie. Behind buildings, changing cars, guys chasing us. We got her back. We got her in her room. For over a month, she couldn't come out of the room. She just laid in her bed, held her pillow, and wept. After about a month, she asked to see me, and I walked in to see her, and, and I brought a couple of staff people, and I sat down beside her, and we started talking, and her first words to me were, can you, wipe, can you take me to the courthouse and wipe away the fact I ever existed? She said, change my name, my social security number. She said, they'll find me, and they'll kill me. And so she told me the story. We had to get law enforcement involved, and, and we did that for her. We changed her existence. We changed her, her identity. I went home that night, and I told Rhonda, I said, we're no longer just going to sit down and fast and pray and weep about this. We're going to do something else about it. And so we went and raised a million dollars and we built our first home for an anti-trafficking program. And so now, and we don't have time to give you all the details, but now after six years, four and a half years of programming, we've now housed over 670 women who've been rescued from sex trafficking and exploitation and brought them into a place of, rest of restoration and rescue and redemption you have no idea what they have been through. When, and, and, and listen, in, in Atlanta, pimps take home an average of $30,000 a week. They force women into 50 to 65 sex acts a week. When we rescue them, they're broken physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way you can be broken. And so contracts have been put out on my life by the pimps because we take away a portion of their revenue source, but we take away what they consider to be their property and if you take away the property, they have to go after the property in order, in order to maintain their street cred. And so that's why I don't like it, but that's why that we have 24-hour armed security. That's why I have to carry a loaded gun. That's because they want to kill us because of the good work we're doing. I had one of the guys in the street that decided that a wedding would be the best place to take me out because nobody would be expecting it. And so word got out in the street that he was going to kill me at the wedding. And so I don't know if I'm the only, maybe you've had this before, Pastor, but I, I, the last thing I did, I was standing in my office and, and I had on my suit and tie and I had my glasses and I had my wedding ceremony and everybody's waiting on me. And my last thought before I walked into the sanctuary was, do I carry or not? Right? You don't usually have that thought right before you go into the wedding. But I, I buzzed a couple of the groomsmen and they were carrying, so I thought, well, we're okay. The preacher probably shouldn't, right? So... We have to have guys hanging out on our property with loaded weapons because of what we do. And so at the end of the day, the father, when I was creating my mother's womb, had a plan that I could be a part of bringing light, hope, and transformation to a community that was filled with darkness. I made my own decisions. I wandered off of that path time and again, but the father's song kept wooing me back. He kept bringing me back to his heart. And in my own rebellion and in my own failures and in my own disobedience, he never stopped loving or caring or reaching for me. And I remember when I was at Lee University and I woke up on a Sunday afternoon and I was not in good condition from the night before and it was three o'clock in the afternoon. I walked outside and I sat down on the, on the carport of the house we were renting there and I realized that, that my journey with the Father was not what it needed to be and I, I got a shower and I drove over to one of the churches in that town and I don't have any idea what the preacher preached about. I don't know what the people sang about. All I know is I sat on the back row and at the end of that service I walked down front and I recommitted my life to Jesus Christ and he didn't say to me, you can't come back home. And he didn't say to me, you've gone too far. And he didn't say to me, you've done too much. He just said, welcome, here's your place at the table that I've been holding for you. 
And at City of Refuge, we set a big old table every day. We've had 20,000 people in crisis come through our campus in the last 21 years who've sat down at the table, the worst of these, the least of these, the broken, the destitute, the beat up, the worn out, the drug dealers, the drug addicts, the prostitutes, the pimps. And you know what I've always found? I've always found that when they walk in the door, the father stands up and goes, I've been waiting on you to come home and the table is now set. Here's your place. And so we invite them to come and sit. So now the Lord has given us favor. We're in 12 communities around the country now and expanding on on an annual basis. We're launching Dallas, Texas in January of next year. As mentioned, we're in Baltimore, we're in Chicago, we're in San Diego, we're in Sacramento and Cincinnati, we're in Jamaica, we're in the Dominican Republic. God's done this unbelievable journey. In a couple weeks, we'll start construction across the street from our property on a 47-unit apartment complex that will be supportive housing for individuals in our community. We own another 23 pieces of property around our property now where we're tearing down old dilapidated houses and build new, safe, affordable housing so that we can see not only individual lives transformed, but we can see the whole community transformed to shine the glory of God. And so it's unbelievable what God's done. People ask, well, what about your daughters now? Did they resent that? My my oldest daughter is my executive assistant. My second daughter runs our anti-trafficking program. My third daughter runs our mentorship program for those in vocational training. My fourth daughter teaches school. My fifth daughter graduated high school this year. They love God and they love the poor and they love those in crisis because we showed them that loving Jesus and loving his people was more more fun than anything else. And so now the Lord is letting his favor rise upon us in incredible ways. But at the end of the day, I'll wrap up with this. At the end of the day, it's still about that one life. It's about that one story. A couple years, three years ago, I was speaking up in Ohio. I'd spoken six times over the course of the weekend. We'd have a phenomenal time. It was wonderful. Got on a plane to fly home, and as I sat down, it struck me. I don't have a yesterday story. And I want to make sure I always have a yesterday story. I don't want the organization to get so big that I'm just an administrator, just an organizer, just a planner. And so I I make sure that I engage with these lives one-on-one, that I have conversation with them, and and that I know their story. And so this morning, I got a voicemail from Vanessa, who's been with us for about 15, 14 years now. I got a voicemail from Vanessa, and, and she calls me Diddy. And she said, Diddy, this Nessa. She said, I'm on the way to the emergency room. I won't be in church, but I'll call you later. Bye, hung up. She's just wonderful. Vanessa was sold by her mother when she was 12 to a guy down the street for a fifth of liquor. Started sexually assaulting her. She got pregnant at 12. They took her out of the home, took the baby out of the home. She's never seen her child. Put her in foster care. She aged out when she was 19. She had nowhere to go. So she went to the streets. Crack addict, heroin addict, alcoholic, prostitute, in and out of jail for 30 years. We met Vanessa at a feeding on a Sunday morning in a liquor store parking lot. So we're feeding biscuits and gravy, and Vanessa walks by and gets a plate of biscuits and gravy, and she looks across the table at me, and she goes, can I go home with you? That's a big question. We got housing for a lot of people. We got program, but she said, can I go home with you? And I said, okay. Let's get in the car. So Vanessa and I come from different backgrounds. Like I said, we're, we have different family experiences. We have different skin tone. Vanessa dips snuff and never spits, and it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's just, <laughs> she's always got a big dip right there. So, so I put her in the car and took her home, and we put her through a 12-month discipleship, a recovery program, then a 12-month discipleship program, and, and found out she had some uh, mental health challenges, so we got her on some uh, SSI, and so she can't work now. She's disabled, and so she said, Diddy, I want to volunteer. I go, okay, Vanessa. 
So Vanessa, before we got our big commercial kitchen for years, she made our sack lunches for lunch every day. So she would come in early in the morning, set up at this round white table in the dining hall. And she would lay all of her lunch stuff out. So she'd lay out bread, meat, cheese, mustard, bread, sandwich bag, brown bag, chips, fruit, and water. And she'd, and she'd make hundreds of lunches every day. So she'd pick up bread, she'd put meat on it, cheese on it, mustard, down, up, down. Now, if you're going to help Vanessa make sandwiches, don't circle your mustard, don't square your mustard. Down, up, down with your mustard, right? So she'd pick up bread, meat, cheese, mustard, more bread, put it in a sandwich bag, put it in a brown bag, add fruit, chips, and water, and make hundreds of them every day. It's just wonderful. And Vanessa's first word to me every day for 14 years, we, bet we just love each other. Her first words to me every day when she sees me, she'll look up from whatever she's doing, she goes, hey, and I look back at her and I go, hey. And that's, hey, how you doing? Hope you have a good day. Love you. See you later. It's all in that one word right there, right? <laughs> so one day I'm touring this group of businessmen through. There's about a dozen of them, and they pull up in their nice cars and nice suits, nice shoes, nice shoes and they're on their annual guilt-relieving trip to the hood. So, and so, listen, I'm good with that if a check's big enough, right? It doesn't matter to me. So anyway. They pull up, and we're touring, and we walk in the dining hall, and Vanessa's spread out over there. she got a little dip running down right here, right? And, uh, and she's spread out. She's making sandwiches, and we walk in, and Vanessa goes, hey. And I looked at her, and I went, hey. And they're all like, huh. We walked a few more steps, and Vanessa went, hey. Now, we'd never had a double hay day before, right? <laughs> we just never had. And so I looked back at her, and I went, what? She goes, not hay to you, hay to them. And they're all like, hey. <laughs> and Vanessa looks at him and she pointed her finger. She goes, y'all be quiet. And I'm like, Vanessa, the owners. She's telling them be quiet. And here's what she said. She pointed her finger. And then she pointed at me. She said, y'all see that man right there? They said, yes, ma'am. She said, man right there saved my life. She picked up a piece of bread, put meat and cheese and mustard on it. I finished my little tour, picked up my phone, called Rhonda, and I go, we're good. We're good. The guns don't really matter. The guys that want to fight don't really matter. The millionaires giving us money, they don't really matter. People endorsing us, it doesn't really matter. What matters is a little girl was 12 years old, and her mother traded her for a fifth of liquor. And she's still stuck in that 12-year-old little girl's mind. And she's never healed. And she was hungry, and we fed her. And she was naked, and we clothed her. And she was homeless, and we gave her a house. And she was friendless, and we became her family. And she can't even quite understand the fullness of justification and the fact that God sent his son to give his life on a cross and through the shedding of his blood, she was forgiven of her sins. All she knows is Pastor Bruce and Rhonda and those five little girls saved her life. I said, we're good. Vanessa now has a bunch of physical issues and uh, she has some incontinence problems. And so one of the best lines I've had in 21 years happened just a couple of weeks ago. Vanessa always asking for a little piece of money. And so I walked in church a couple of weeks ago. I'd been gone speaking somewhere for a couple of weeks. And I walked in. She's sitting right over here. Daddy, come over here. Whole church full of people. I walk over. She goes, you're going to need to stay home. 
She said, them other boys are okay, but they're not you. And I said, well, I know, Vanessa. And she said, I'm going to need 60 today. <laughs> I said, I said, 60? She goes, Daddy, I'm going to need 60. She goes, I got to buy diapers and dip. <laughs> you just can't get that everywhere. <laughs> I gave her $60. And this morning when she's headed to the emergency room, there's only one person she knows to call. Daddy, I'll be at the hospital. I'll call you after a while. I hope there's somebody in your life. <laughs> I hope there's somebody that knows they can always call your number. I hope there's somebody who has nobody except you. I hope this community knows that when they've got a crisis, they can call this office. I hope this neighborhood knows that you're not exclusive. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I hope somebody points their finger at you this week and says, see that person right there? person right there saved my life. Thank you. Just rip.